This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by the Christianity Today Public Theology Project. Every week we explore questions and conversations from a Christian perspective. And this week, I am here at the Chapter House at the Warren with my friend Andrew Peterson, who has just written this new, or just published his new book, The God of the Garden. And we were, we were supposed to do this at my house. Mm-hmm. And then the more I thought about it as of yesterday, I live in one of the soulless suburbs, just five <laughs> minutes down the road, but one of the soulless suburbs that you blast in the yes. book. And I thought that's really, it would be better to be here <laughs> because uh, there's a lot, and we'll get into it later, but a lot about this particular house mm-hmm. and that view right out the window where we are right now in um in the book. Yeah. And so thanks for letting me letting us be here. Yes, nice yeah. to have you back. You know, another reason why I'm glad to be here is because this place uh, has been a haven for me at, at some of the craziest times mm. and other times, but some of the craziest times to be here and just hang out and talk about normal things when there are abnormal things going on Mm -hmm. and during COVID outside and so forth. That's, that's just a blessing. And when I was thinking about the things I'm most grateful for uh, over the past or 18 months COVID, that was a big Mm -hmm. uh, part of it. So it's cool to be here. That's awesome. Me too. Me too. One of my favorite for what, I, I don't know what it is about me, but like I, uh, I'm fairly introverted, and so big groups, you know, I can do it, I can handle yeah. it, I have a good time. But three or four friends sitting in a circle, um, talking, I could be there for hours. Like yeah. it is so life giving to me, and we have spent many hours in this place that like it feels like such a, a haven to me. And I, I just there's this C.S. Lewis quote I just read where he was like, "Is there anything more pleasurable than?" Christian friends by a fire or something yeah. like that. There was, I forget the quote, but I was just, I immediately thought of the nights that we've hung out in here and had like long rambly conversations that aren't about, you know, it's not like we're sitting here, they're not beard strokey conversations, you know? <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes it is, but usually it's just laughter, you right. know? Sometimes right. it's tears, but it's, I, I really treasure um, those those nights. It's really good for me. When you were, I, I had to laugh as I was rereading uh, the God of the Garden, because I was, I was thinking about. It was odd to be reading this while knowing this place, and I did several points. I just said this really does get at something key to hmm. AP, hmm. Uh, and uh, and. Part of that 
is you talk about in this book, and we'll talk about in a few minutes what the book is about. Sure. Uh, but you talk about in this book the need for rootedness and the need to have a place to come home to mm-hmm. when you're on the road all the time. And I mean, w- while we're recording this right now, you're leaving uh, to continue the Behold the Lamb of God tour yeah. that you do every year around the Christmas season mm-hmm. tomorrow morning. Yeah. So I I was thinking as I was reading that, there are a lot of our listeners who are musicians or truck drivers mm-hmm. or traveling sales representatives and whatever, and they're out on the road a yeah. lot. Yeah. How how do you do that without without it just wearing you down and disconnecting you? Over? Yeah. Well, it does wear me down. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it's I'm I'm super tired right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I took a. Uh, Two days ago, we were on the road and it was the last show of like a, I think, you know, from the time the tour started until yesterday, we had had one day off, like after Thanksgiving. Mm. And so I'm 47 now and I I feel it in my body in a way that I didn't used to. And um, uh, I took two naps one afternoon, Mm. (laughs) which is really weird for me. So yes, it does wear me out, but I think it's a lesson we learned back early on in, in my music career my wife and I, we were kind of like committed to doing this thing together. She was a background singer, you know, so she, it was me and her and my buddy Gabe on the road. And, uh, and then when she got pregnant with our first one, two weeks after his birth, he was back on the road with us, uh, sleeping out of, Aiden was literally sleeping in our suitcase. We would take the clothes Mm. out and make a little, Mm. you know, uh, manger (laughs) for him. And, uh, and so we were doing that. It was probably five years of doing that. I think at the peak of our travel, we were gone nine months, one year. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that our marriage had a hard season in the mm-hmm. middle of that. And, uh, and when we came home and needed to like recover, we realized we didn't have any community. We, we were like disconnected from our church. Um, we felt like nobody, there, there were very few people in, in Nashville that we felt safe enough to, to like talk through what was going on. And that was like this m- huge, like, um, red light started flashing mm. for both of us. We're like, this is not how this is supposed to be. We've actually counseled quite a few younger uh, artists who are married, like, hey, you should really think hard about only one of you being out at a time yeah. because there there has to be some kind of connectedness to a local church, some group of people that, that, are, that know what's going on in your life, that can pray for you when you're gone, mm. um, that welcome you back with open arms when you get home, or it's just not going to work. You know, it's funny you say that because I have talked to in recent days several musicians who are Christians who are right at the edge of losing their faith. Mm. And I'm curious to know why you think that. I mean, at any point, everyone's always in struggling and, and mm-hmm. fighting. But right now, there seems to be much more than usual yeah. uh, musicians sort of, I feel like I'm deconstructing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they mean by that is sort of the furthest edge of that. Right. Uh, and I wonder why. Do you think it's the being disconnected from a church community, being on the road all the time? Or is there just something unique about this time that's especially hard? Man, I, I'm... I'm as mystified as anyone about it all. Um, I think uh, it's tricky. First of all, 
I just don't like the word deconstruction. Nor do I. But and yeah. because I feel like that there is a deconstruction can be a really good, beautiful thing, you know. Yeah. Like, but deconstruction implies like a res, like a responsible, careful thinking through of this structure. But the real issue I have with it is that Christianity Christianity is not a construct. Yeah. It's not something that you can, you can't deconstruct the person of Jesus. But some forms of Christianity have become a construct. Right. Yeah. So, so it, it, when somebody talks about Christianity in those terms, I kind of am like, where is Jesus? Like mm-hmm. he inhabits this house that you're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. and are he's supposed to? Yeah. And so um, as, as for artists that are dealing with it, I, maybe, maybe it's that, maybe it's that there's a little bit of disconnectedness from a, a local church, but it's also artists tend to, uh, live at the edge of things, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, part of what, what, uh, there's like a, can be a prophetic kind of voice that it requires this live, this, uh, um, exploration of the in-betweens, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that if, if you're a Christian and you're an artist that comes built, uh, built into that is a, a real sense of, uh, intention mm-hmm. and purpose. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I've never felt comfortable um, it's kind of like some, somebody being in the international space station. Sometimes you've got to climb outside of the thing, but you're always going to be tethered to the space station because you yeah. know, that's your life source. So in that analogy, um, I don't know that a lot, of, I think a lot of people ha- have forgotten that the real source of their life is this, is this church. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, um, that may, I, that, that's a theory. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of speaking off the top of my head, but I do, feel like it makes me think of Father Thomas McKenzie, who died this year, um, my dear friend. Um, I remember him talking about, um, we may have talked about this before, when he was young, he used to think doubting was cool. Mm -hmm. And he said that the older he's gotten, the more he's realized that there's a faithful doubting and an unfaithful doubting. And uh, I think the key is to faithfully doubt. Like if you're going to ask questions, do it from a posture of wrestling with the angel not turning away from it. I just saw one of his parishioners had uh, put up on social media, I think, about when he was going through this time of, when this parishioner was going through this time of intense doubt. And it, something along the lines of this, he told Thomas, I don't, uh, I'm afraid I don't believe in God uh, right now. And Thomas said, okay, well, let's just, let's just say you're not going to believe in God right now, but you're going to show up and I just have confidence enough in word and sacrament that we can get you through that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this person was saying that's exactly what happened. I mean, it doesn't happen with everybody, but it happened yeah, with him. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's. A, I remember talking to Ian Cron about this one time. I told him I was confessing some sin and... And, uh, no, what was it? It doesn't matter. Like I was talking to Ian about some, something and, and he pointed out that every time he sins, he's disbelieving in God. Mm. And there, like, there's a sense in which that's true. Like, I mean, every time I choose the wrong thing, it's because at it, at its heart, arguably it's because I've stopped believing that God really is who he says he is, you mm. know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my thing is like, I kind of want to be like, everybody doubts. We, like we, mm-hmm. we doubt all the time. Um, and it's not as binary as I think that people make it sound, um, that you can be a full Christian and have 15 doubts a day, you know? Yeah. I think there are a lot of people who, because we only know ourselves from the inside out, you assume that everybody else is living a completely different sort of Christian mm-hmm. life that people are just, yeah. I mean, we know 
cognitively that people are, everybody's a sinner, but you tend to think, well, everybody else just has this kind of singing hymns to themselves hmm. all the time sort of mentality. And mm -hmm. so something's, something's wrong. Right. That's also a very Enneagram four way of doing it. It is. Yeah. yeah I know. <laughs> Which we both yeah, are. Yeah, we both but that, are. Yeah. That feeling that like, there's something wrong with me that isn't wrong with yes, anybody else. Yeah, you know what I mean? True. I yeah. carry that with me everywhere I go. Yeah. 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 So uh, maybe what I'm saying is most people don't, uh, don't do that. And so maybe, <laughs> maybe right. I'm projecting that uh, onto other uh, well, people. Well, I do it. So, hey, that's why you're welcome to the chapter house. <laughs> you know, um, you were talking in the book, The God of the Garden, about seeking solitude without disconnection. Yeah. And there were a couple of, uh, there were a couple of points in the book where I said to myself, what was really similar, one of the things I treasure uh, you gave to me recently is a first edition of C.S. Lewis's Four Loves. Mm -hmm. And what I treasure about it most is the inscription that says, you too, I thought I was the only one that you wrote in there. Because, of course, that's what Lewis says um, friendship mm. is. And you too, I thought I was the only one. And I was laughing at some points because I went through the book how similar some aspects of our childhoods were, hmm. even though I was in coastal Mississippi, you were first in Illinois and then in Florida. Uh, for instance, I had a secret, I called it my secret thinking place. No which way. Was, yeah, it was these, this kind of, it was right in the middle of a kind of swampy area out in the woods with some trees that had fallen down <laughs> from a hurricane uh, yeah. long ago. It was a secret thinking place. You talk about in the book having this sort of refuge uh, the in thinking tree. nature. Thinking yeah. tree. Yeah. yeah. The thinking tree. Yeah. Yeah. That, that That's just, crazy to me. It, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, the thinking tree was this, well, the cool thing about that in the book was that I had forgotten completely about the thinking tree until I went home to Illinois, uh, to my hometown a few years ago. And while I was walking through the town, I was texting my parents stuff. I was like, Hey, here, I'm standing here. What do you remember about this place? And all of a sudden I, I was like, did our family used to cross the street to the park and sit around a tree? What a weird thing. It's like this druidic thing, you know? Yeah. I was like, what were we doing? I texted my mom and dad and they were like, oh, that we would go there and read together. We would read stories. We called it the thinking tree. And and uh, she, my mom said, your dad used to go there alone to pray. Mm -hmm. He would sit at the base of this tree to pray when he was working on a sermon or whatever. And uh, and I didn't know that, but it means that as a child, I, I would have seen my dad go to be alone Ooh. and sit at the base of a tree and work out his sermons or whatever. And they said that my, then the real nugget was when my mom texted and said, I remember you used to always ask us if you could go to the thinking tree by yourself. And we would always tell you to look out for traffic on state street. Ooh. And it was a memory that had was completely gone from me, but it unlocked something in me. I was like, Oh man, I've always felt a kind of, uh, peace, uh, communion with God when I'm away from things, when I'm close mm -hmm. to home, but I'm far enough out to where I can feel like I'm in a secret place, like you were talking yeah. about. Yeah. And for me, it was also stars mm. uh, because walking at night, uh, something about just feeling the smallness yeah. of the night sky. And Maria makes fun of me even now because I will sort of uh, pay attention to a book mm -hmm. if the cover 
and I'll oh, say, you're drawn to covers yeah, and she'll say, "Oh, it's of course you do. It's good stars <laughs> on it, or or a That's picture really of a baby, or whatever huh. uh, that's there." That's good. But you also talk about in the book uh, going as as I did all the time. Um, I didn't stay there overnight, but I would go during the day to Gethsemane Abbey, right, and walk around because you you have the church mm-hmm. very quiet. You also have those hills all around it. Mm -hmm. And you talk about in the book being there and about your song, The Silence of God, coming out of that. A Mm -hmm. lot of people have really identified with that song, The Silence of God. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about sort of how that came about and what what that was like? I was, uh, well, it was that season I was talking about when we were on the road. And, and our marriage had some hard stuff in it and I didn't know what to do. I was, I was kind of, I was pretty angry with God. Um, but in a way that was more about like, I I wanted him to explain himself to me. It wasn't that I didn't believe in him. I just wanted an, I wanted, you know, a courtroom drama kind of thing. So silly when I look back on it, but that's how I really felt. And so a friend of mine suggested that I go to this monastery in Kentucky, which, um, you know, I, I grew up very much, uh, Protestant evangelical in the South. So like Catholic stuff was, was very foreign to me. So I was like, what do I do? What do I do at a monastery? And he was like, just go give them, give them your name. They'll let you stay for the weekend, whatever. And so, uh, and he actually, he told me to give them his name because his name was on the reservation. And so I got to lie to monks, which was <laughs> super thrilling for this pastor's kid. But uh, anyway, I yeah, I went and spent three days fasting and praying and kind of uh, really hoping that if I was a good enough boy that God would condescend to answer my demands, you know? Yeah. And which, again, I it makes a lot of sense when I look back, like I was... Uh, the cool, the, the cool thing is like, I know he wasn't mad at me for that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that he kind of like when you see your kids say, I'm going to run away from home. It's like, cool, I'll be here when you get back. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like he was just kind of letting me throw my fit and, and, um, he was patient with me in a way that I'm very grateful for. Uh, but at the end of my more or less fruitless three days in the monastery where I just was kind of kept butting up against this maddening silence, um, I ended up spotting a footpath that led into the woods and those hills. And um, that footpath led me to a statue of Jesus that was, there was something about it. And and it was one of the wonderful things about art is that there was, um, uh, the artist was able to convey something that I had never really experienced before uh, about Jesus's forsakenness and his mm-hmm. agony in the garden. And um, I don't know, I, I I knew in a way that I'd never known before that he was with me. Mm in the silence. And, um, I think the quote in the book is that I, I knew him better in the silence than ever I ever had in the song. Ooh. Um, that there was an intimacy in that solitude that, um, I wouldn't trade for anything. Ooh. You know, you mentioned being a good enough boy and that's interesting to me because, and I've mentioned this here before, I'm wondering why this is 10 years ago. If I, if I was talking to a, say, 22, 23-year-old Christian mm-hmm. guy or girl, usually the problem would be people who sort of presumed on the grace of God, oh, I, I prayed a prayer, God's, God understands, he's good with me, I'm, I'm going to try to be the prodigal and the, 
a brother at home mm-hmm. at the same time. Now, I very rarely find that. And when I'm talking to Christian students somewhere that I'm teaching or, or what have you, it almost always, if you really get deep enough, they feel like God is mad at them, <laughs> that God's angry at them. And they, they know Romans 3 and 4 and 5. They know all of that, but they feel like <laughs> that's the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, one kid even said to me, I'm a kid, young man, said to me, um, I know I'm not somebody who thinks you ought to just put your finger down in the Bible, but every time I open my Bible, it's to a passage of judgment. And I feel like God's saying something to me. I said, give me your Bible. (laughs) I opened it up. I said, it just naturally opens to Ezekiel or Jeremiah. (laughs) You're going to have some judgment passages uh, in there. But I think think that there are a lot of people for whom that is the Mm -hmm. case. Why why do you think that is? Man, uh, I don't know. For me, it was because I I think I grew up in the cultural Christian South. Mm. Um, And it was like... Uh, you know, and I, and I never want to like throw shade on my mom and dad. Like yeah. they were great. They loved Jesus. And, and I know that they believed in his love and taught it to me, but there was something in the water that, and maybe, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just, this is how we're wired, but I just, I just missed it. I just missed the, uh, the real centrality of the person of Christ and the fact that, that he was tender, mm. um, with, with me. And, uh, so I, I don't know why that is. Um, I know for me it was because I had a guilty conscience. You know, I knew I was a sinner. I knew I, I uh, constantly did and still do things that I wish I didn't do. And um, and the turning point for me was uh, the music of Rich Mullins. And mm. and I think the, the turning point for him was the writings of Brennan Manning. <laughs> mm. And mm. and so there was that, like I found the Ragamuffin Gospel because of Rich Mullins. And that, that was the beginning of this realization that... that Jesus's love was stronger than anything. And so I kind of had this realization when I was, you know, 19 or 20, right around that time, like that began to unfold to me how marvelous the good news really was. And uh, that's why I do what I do. Like Like a lot of it is because I'm like, man, if I grew up in a church, I'm a pastor's kid, memorizing Bible verses and going to VBS and church camp and everything, and I still missed it. Yeah. There must be tons of other people out there who don't believe that God loves them. And um, I think I say in the book, like the thesis statement of every concert I do is, I want people to know Jesus is God and that he loves them. Like that's that's what I hope they take away. And obviously some kind of longing to, um, to be with him, to see him. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't, I, can, I can't explain why that is. Um, I know for me it was just because I, I was, I knew I was, a stinker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was a pastor's kid, you know, and I was, mm-hmm. I look back with, with such, um, I still struggle with it, but just real shame about who I was and what drove me. Um, back shame, in the day. The shame that you were bearing then or shame that you have now when you look back. I think I feel embarrassed. It's uh, not shame as yeah. much as I look back and I'm like, wow, I'm, I really, it, you know, the thing is I've moved into a place where, you know, we're always growing. I'm sure I'm thinking a lot of things wrong now, but I really do now a lot of times just walk around in like a kind of dazed wonder that Jesus loves me. Yeah. Like it's a good place to be. 
Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I can't believe it sometimes. And I, and I, like we're doing the Christmas tour right now. And uh, after a year of not getting to do it, I forgot how much I love telling people this story, mm. you know, until mm -hmm. we got on the road. And um, I was just talking to my counselor an hour or two ago. Um, he was asking about that Beekner quote. Um, you know, the place God calls you to is a mm. place where your deep gladness mm. and the world's deep hunger meet. And he was like, where do you find your deep gladness on the Christmas tour? And I had to think about it. I was like, where, hmm, let me think. Uh, because I do a lot of uh, kind of whinging about the fact that I got to be home, you know, mm. like it's, it's, we're out there not just because it is fun, but we're also, it's a very intentional tour. Like um, at, after 22 years, like we've got, there's got to be more to it than just, wow, music is neat. Mm. Um, and so for me, it took me a while to get to the bottom of it, but I was like, the moment that I really feel, um, deep gladness, it's when I'm singing one of those songs and I look out and I see somebody else in the audience receiving the love mm. of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I see their eyes are closed and they're singing along and there's something about this, um, this night that is helping them to believe that unbelievable thing that Jesus sees them and knows them and completely loves them. Yeah. And, uh, and when, it, so when I see that and I'm telling them that it bounces back on me oh. and all of a sudden I can believe it a little easier too. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Russell Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place.
do you think, because I'm thinking about people who are listening this, to this or watching this, who maybe are stopping to think, where's my area of deep gladness? Do you think that sometimes even the places where you find that, what Beekner would call deep gladness, that you kind of lose sight of it? I know I do, hmm. where I kind of, I have to remind myself sometimes that this is the point of deep gladness because <laughs> there are all these other things that are going on around it that are easy to pay attention to. Right, right. Uh, and sort of lose focus of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, man. I, I, well, I mean, I'm sure it's like you. Like, I had to really, it took me about 30 minutes to get to get to that. I was yeah. like, where is it? I yeah. mean, I know where, where I'm supposed to find my deep gladness. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can feel a lot of oughtness to it. But, but it took me a while to be like, oh, that's right. There is a moment that, that makes me get a lump in my throat, which is, again, another Beekner thing is like yeah. pay attention to the things pay that make you Pay attention to the tears. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I would, I, I mean, I'm curious, what, where is that for you? Like, do you find in the middle of the chaos, there's a thing that makes you? Yeah, but it takes me, it takes me digging around in it too. And I mean, Maria, my wife, uh, pointed out, there was a day I was in the middle of traveling somewhere and I had to travel somewhere else and then I had to do something else and I had to call somebody, I had to do all of this. And I just was kind of venting mm. on the phone to her. And I said, uh, people think I'm a robot. I can't do all of these things. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, I just want to remind you that six months ago you said that you were toxic and radioactive and no one would ever want to be seen with you again. So kind of buck it up and uh, see. see, But it does, I think, uh, sort of the incidental things Uh for most people can just get, they become, it's easy for them to become the focus and you just lose that. Yep, for sure. And I'm so, I mean, that's, that's how it is for me. And I'm, Jamie's like Maria, she reminds me you asked for this, you know? Yeah. And, and it's true. Like, I mean, when I was 19, I said, Lord, will you let me sing about you and write about you? And so whenever it gets crazy, I'm like, um, I have to, you know, you go back to your first love and you give thanks. And, uh, and then, you know, sure enough, there are, there's plenty of, uh, trail magic along the way. Remember we've talked about trail magic, that whole idea that when you're hiking the Appalachian trail, people will hide water in places. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because you, when you can't take another step and you're out of water, you'll find this little package. And I feel like that happens a lot. And that's yeah. for Russ me. Ramsey was talking yeah, about that. Yeah, Russ was talking about he, that. He was finding all of these things along the way. Yep, that, yep. Yeah. And I, I think about that when I'm on the road, that I'll get a text from a friend at just the right time. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. I I, I, uh, I don't know what to say to people out there other than I'm I'm really thankful for, you know, the tour is 22 years old now. And uh, there have been plenty of opportunities for us to quit along the way. And, but now it's become a kind of liturgy, like where after this long, like there are uh, things about the show, like it happened the other night. We, we always close the show with, Oh, come all you faithful followed by a scripture reading. And I say, this is the word of the Lord. And they say, thanks be to God. And we sing the doxology. And then we walk off the stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, thousands of shows, the same thing. Mm-hmm. And there's something so, um, comforting about knowing that that's what we're about to do with the same group of friends, more or less. Um, And so the long obedience in the same direction, I think is, is um, possibly the best answer to that question. Like you're not going to feel deep gladness all the time. Um, But if you're engaged in that kind of a liturgy, it's kind of like your friend who said, why don't you just keep coming to church, even if you don't believe in Mm -hmm. God and we'll, 
we will be patient with you. And I think he's, he's been that way with me. You were just talking about Jamie saying you signed up for this Mm -hmm. and immediately, uh, but Maria said something similar, but sometimes what I'll think is 19 year old Russell Moore signed up for a lot of things that sort of set the trajectory (laughs) of Uh my life. And I wouldn't trust my 19 year old kids to, to form an entire (laughs) life plan for me. Uh But I, this guy did. Yeah. And 19 year old Andrew Peterson made a lot of decisions that led you to where you are right now. What, what advice would you give to 19 year old Hmm. Andrew Peterson? Um, I would say, um, once again, to quote my buddy, Russ Ramsey, don't forget that you've only ever had one provider. Um, I think a lot of the decisions 19 year I said yes to too many things. I think at, at the beginning of a music career, you've got to say, just agree to whatever, because it's the only way to do it. But I think um, my new favorite hobby is saying no to things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, uh, I'm learning to do that. And I, I realized that a lot of the situations I got in were because I was scared to death, mm-hmm. um, that I wasn't going to be able to take care of my family um, or that I was going to like be irrelevant, you know, there was ambition mixed in with Mm -hmm. a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think I would have just told him, hey, you know, it's, uh, you don't have anything to prove and also you're going to be okay. You know, you don't Mm -hmm. have to be so scared all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that would have shaped, I wouldn't have gotten myself into some situations that I may have gotten myself into. I wouldn't have burned out, I don't think, as much. I remember Eugene Peterson, I heard him interviewed right before he died and somebody said, do you have any regrets? And uh, he said, more vacation. Mm. Yeah, like he, he regretted taking the more vacation? Sorry, or he, his regret was that he didn't take, didn't more, take vacation. more vacation. Yeah. And as a pastor, I was like, oh man, I, I was a pastor's kid. I was like, oh yeah, that we didn't ever do that, you know, as a yeah. kid. And so making more room for Sabbath and because it's a it's a it's an exercise in faith. If you're self-employed, yeah. every time you take a break, you're having to trust, you know. Well, in Peterson, you know, in the pastor, he writes about when his elders said, take a, take a time away, take a Sabbath. And he came to the elders meeting and I was really struck that one of them was hurt and said, don't you trust us? Wow. And he, he realized that a lot of that was sort of believing in his own indispensability. Yes. Which I know is the case uh, often for me. If if I'm not doing it. It's not going to get done. Right. Right. Man, one of the best moments of my professional life was, I write about this in Adorning the Dark, but the, the, there was a night we were supposed to play the Ryman show several years ago and, uh, the Christmas tour. And, you know, there's a whole full band of these amazing people on that tour. And I got sick the night before I was throwing up and, and I was just like, what are we going to do? How am I going to do the show? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the show would have become completely fine if I wasn't there. I was like, so-and-so can sing that song, that guitar part, so-and-so can play. And man, I have never done the show with more freedom mm. than I did the night that I knew that I was dispensable. You know, one of the things that I notice about, not just the Ryman show, but maybe the Ryman show as a metaphor uh, for you, is that you are an introducer of, I mean, there there are so many people that I know because you've introduced me, or there's something else. And on the in the Ryman show, 
you'll have a lot of people who have been there all along, uh, and Andy Gullihorn and Jill mm-hmm, Phillips. Mm-hmm. And then you'll also have uh, people that you're sort of introducing to mm-hmm. the world. Is that strategic? Did you sort of at some point decide that or did it just happen that way? Um, well, it, w- it was because I, in the beginning, it was because I knew that I couldn't do the whole show by myself. I knew that I needed more voices in the room. And I thought the perfect answer will be to invite them to open and then they'll be a part of the band in the second half. But over the years, I kind of began to realize that um, that first half of the show where I get to introduce the audience to all these singer-songwriters that are in our community here, um, it felt like a, a cool way of pushing back at this, like, you know, some people think that Christian music is only what they hear on K-Love. Mm. And I always want to be like, actually, no, there are a whole lot of believers that are making another kind of art mm-hmm. that is uh, what David Wilcox calls medicinal music. Mm. I've <laughs> never like, heard that. Medicinal it's kind of like uh, a way of, so So in my mind, it was kind of like uh, letting the audience eat their vegetables. It was kind of like, uh-huh. we're not gonna, just going to feed you something that's obviously good for you. We're going to give you something that you're going to have to think about and help you see that there there's another way of, of thinking of... Uh, Another, another way of receiving the gospel than just worship music or whatever. And so I got really excited about the fact that I got the, our show was a, a chance to introduce this audience to a whole different way of doing this. Um, that was in some ways like a voice in the wilderness in the Christian music landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of it is like we gr- coming up in that world, that was like, the, there are so many amazing uh, artists who were, you know, had these like, had this deep faith that were working their tails off. And, you know, playing for small rooms and doing this thing. And I just was like, if there's any way to like, I know that I've received a lot of help from those folks. And Mm -hmm. so if I can turn it around and and let this show be a show where we celebrate that kind of stuff, then um, that's how, what it grew into. Mm. You know, if you, we look out the window where we're sitting right now, um, there's a a garden, Uh, there's an arch that you built uh, out of stones. And you talk about in this book, The God of the Garden, about gardening Mm -hmm. as being important uh, for for you and important. You're commending gardening or the equivalent of it to other people. Why? Um, Wow, there's a lot of ways to answer that. Um, The first thing that pops into my head is that I have learned a lot about Jesus through the process of of um, getting closer to his creation. Um, and I've said this before, but you know, that the ancient Christians, one of the things they used to say is that there's two books of revelation. There's the book of scripture and there's the book of nature. And so um, the way I usually put it is that if you want to know what God is like, you read your Bible, but also look at the world he made. And Jesus um, lived close to the earth and almost all of his um parables involve agrarian themes, Mm -hmm. you know? And so we live in this little narrow window of time in history when most of us, at least in the American West, are pretty cut off from eating anything that we grow ourselves Mm -hmm. or really being engaged with how how to grow stuff, how to take care of the land. And so um, I know that when I was uh, beginning to read more Wendell Berry, um, I remember doing a thing with him and Norman Wurzba and... uh, and they talked about, I remember it was striking Norman Wurzba, who's a guy at, I think, Duke. He was talking about how next time you read your Bible, pay attention to how mm-hmm. many times there are agrarian metaphors. Mm-hmm. And so that was the beginning of this little light bulb 
coming on for me living out here in the country where we live. And I started trying to pay more attention to what God might be speak, saying to me through the way I was growing things. And, and um, so everything from beekeeping to like pruning the grapevines made me think about Jesus's teaching about pruning and um, abiding in him um, to the fact that, you know, a lot of time I spend in the garden, I'm kneeling. Um, I'm actually like in a posture of humility and, and worship. So it, it, I pray almost the whole time, you know, there's an ongoing conversation when I'm out there. Usually I'm, I'm asking God why there are weeds, you know, I'm, I'm upset about that, but, but, uh, it has the taking care of the land and, and, uh, 2020 in particular, when I had a whole year to really, because um, of COVID and yeah, yeah, I was home, I was stuck at home from the road. So I had a whole year to like really pay attention and try to like, um, take care of the place. And I realized that not only was the land flourishing, but I was flourishing too. Mm. That there was this, I felt like there were echoes of Eden that I was experiencing in a way that I'd never experienced before. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, th I just think that, and if, especially if you live in, uh, if you have a job that involves a lot of cerebral mm -hmm. screen time thinking kind of stuff mm -hmm. that you have, like it's just crucial that you find a way to incorporate in your life practices that get you in connection with the given world. Um, mm -hmm. Because it's one of the loudest sermons that God preaches to us, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I was just telling somebody uh, the other day, I love the fact that in at the beginning of lockdown, one of the, the top Google searches was, why are the birds so loud? Mm -hmm. That <laughs> still makes me laugh. The people really thought that like COVID had for some reason, like raised the volume of the birds, but no, is the, the, a lot of the noise had gone away. So getting you, out, saw, you saw that the, the, these Gen's ears did with the uh, oh, birds, birds are, are real. real. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's, it's insane. And, uh, I love the fact that they finally had to be like, we were just kidding. We were just, kidding. That's just, right. Just in case. <laughs> that kind of proved our point. Crazy yeah. people started believing them, uh, which probably would have happened. Right. Probably did actually. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, I just, I, that, that's my thing is like getting you, finding a practice in your life that, that has you in contact with creation is kind of a way of allowing yourself to hear the birds that are always there. Mm. And, uh, what about the guy who's listening, who's, um, works on wall street yeah. in New York city, or is a church planner in midtown Chicago or something yeah. like that? How, how do they, how do they do that? When you're well, in the middle of a city. Yeah. It's probably actually easier in a city than it is in, in a solar subdivision like the one that you live in, Russell. <laughs> uh, just kidding. No, but the city is like, is wonderful. Like mo mm. most good cities have some of the best parks, you know. Mm. Um, learn mm. the names of the trees on your street. Um, buy a bird book, you know. You can go birding in any, like, like it's just a matter of learning to see. You could sketch. I've started sketching and I see trees completely differently whenever I'm in a mode where I'm doing a lot of tree drawing. Um, and so there's, there are ways to put small things in your life that, that uh, train you to see. Mm. You know, we have a mutual friend who was uh, telling us one time about um, serving on staff with John Stott. Mm-hmm. And that <laughs> how intimidating it is to preach for John uh -huh. Stott. It would have to be. Yeah. Uh, and said, so, but the only time that Stott was uh, sort of came up and rebuked him was because he said seagull. Uh -huh. And he said, there's no such thing as a seagull. That's a generic category because Stott was a bird watcher. Yes. I mean, I don't think people, a lot of people know that this brilliant exegete pastor leader yeah. was. Yeah. 
Probably for that reason. Probably so. Yeah. I would like it, it, he probably just followed his nose. Like he was probably fascinated when he was a kid and he just like never let go of that thing. And, uh, and I think that like, like letting your whim kind of lead you to the thing is, is a good, a good move there. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, you don't have to learn how to, you know, uh, gr- grow a cottage garden. Like it's little things, you know, yeah. it's just paying attention to like there, the world is, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, you know? Yeah. So, um, so pay attention to it, listen to it. And I think that you'll be surprised. It changes the way you read the Bible. I know that and I'm reading Ezekiel right now and I've been underlining the, 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 in the beginning of Ezekiel, the very few encouraging bits because yeah. it's, a, yeah. there's a whole lot of judgment and warning and stuff that's happening, but almost the every beginning time, and the end, there's, yeah, yeah. almost every time that there's a little gleam of hope, it's tied to some garden imagery. It's like, there's some like, I, you know, but I will plant you in a good place or mm-hmm. I will, whatever. So, uh, and that's just because I've, I've been paying attention to growing things and, mm-hmm. and how crucial that is. Tell folks how they can learn about the rabbit room. Yeah, go to rabbitroom.com and um, poke around and ideally become a member. Um, the rabbit room membership is what keeps the gas in the engine. And uh, our mission statement is that, let me think if I can remember it, the rabbit room cultivates and curates story, art, and music to nourish Christ-centered communities for the life of the world. Mm. And so we are publishing books, um, putting on conferences, because we believe that this is one of the ways that God nourishes his people and that his people are the life, are, are, are one of the ways that the, the world comes to know him. Mm. Well, thanks for doing this. AP. Yeah, it's, man. Thank uh, you so much. I know that you're in the middle of a bunch of things. And so thanks for taking It's been time. so good to talk to you. You have been listening to The Russell Moore Show. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you leave a review, it helps us uh, get uh, get the word out to other people. If you're listening on a smartphone, you can tap the cover art and you'll find uh, the show notes with some resources, including how you can get a copy of this book, The God of the Garden. And while you're there, check out Christianity Today, founded by uh, Billy Graham, advancing uh, this cause of uh, beautiful orthodoxy uh, all around the world. And you can become a member uh, there. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to the Christianity Today Public Theology Project's Russell Moore Show. Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer. Russell Moore is the executive producer and host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Production assistance by Cormedia. Beth Gravencourt serves as coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer. Audio mixing on today's episode by Kevin Duthu. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. Administration for Christianity Today by Christine Kolb and Pam Vodanova. If you like what you heard on today's episode, make sure you subscribe to catch the upcoming episodes. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. 
Give now at morect.com slash equip.